Lucia, welcome back to Make Sierra Leone Famous. Conversations that explore history, culture, and our identity. With me, your host, Vicky Rameau. You can find previous episodes of our show on www.vickyrameau.com. That's www.vickyremoe.com. And now, make the show begin. Think about it. We parents there, they were very uh, idealistic. <laughs> they will say they go study, they come back and put all their talents to building their country. You know that was what it was all about. Uh, whilst for our generation, um, the thing was so dysfunctional. You know, when you go, when somebody tell you about something bad, you complain and say, "What are the system?" You know, as if that was like uh, you had to accept that that's how things were. And we didn't want to accept that because, you know, uh, we knew that it could have been better. It could have been so much better. And so the dream of that kind of immediate post-independent Sierra Leone was, was dead. It was in tatters. And uh, one day I sat down, and I'm not being melodramatic. <laughs> I, I, I cried, actually. It was so upsetting. And actually it was that night when the guy told me about the... Um, the diamonds thing. Um, I was not long married, and uh, my, my then wife, Zainab, and I sat in the room, and she said she'd never seen me so depressed. Um, and I said to her, I said, you know, what that guy has just told me about the system, he's the attorney general, he's the minister of justice, and he's bragging to me that people come and regularly bribe him, and he's not even, didn't even care that he was saying it to me. Um, uh, it, it literally uh, brought me to tears because I was planning already uh, that, you know, one day I would go back. And I thought I can't come back and, and exist in this system where, as you say, um, people who were influential got away almost with murder, not quite, but pretty close to it. Uh, they did things and there was no comeback and nobody held them to account. And welcome to another edition of the Make Sierra Leone Famous podcast with your wonderful host, that's me, Vicky Rameau. Um, today I'm talking to Sierra Leonean writer, historian, and just like museum, Ade Darami. We're continuing our conversation on Sierra Leonean history. If you remember the last time we met Ade Darami, we talked about how his life, um, his life story, because he's a little, just a little over 60, um, <laughs> parallels that of Sierra Leone. We wanted to hear a small biography about how developments in Sierra Leone have impacted his own personal life journey um, over the years. And that's the conversation, I believe, in the 80s um, after he yeah. had moved back to the UK and was living in the UK, um, you know, starting out, I guess, his early professional life. Ade, thank you so much for coming on the show. This episode is going out the week of Sierra Leone's 60th anniversary. It is the show that we're going to use to let witting that mean for we, out the country, what, what's, you know, from where we come from over the last six decades. Sure, sure. Um, 
Are there any insights or can we go to the back to tell us what is to come? Um, is it an, are you optimistic about the future of Sierra Leone? Where yeah. are we headed? So welcome on our anniversary, um, independence anniversary special. Yeah. So Ade, tell me about the 90s for you and how developments in Sierra Leone in the 90s impacted um, your personal life. Yeah, I mean, the 90s were interesting because, you know, Sierra Leone was going through quite a lot of turmoil. Um, the This country had settled into a kind of one-party state. And so um, long before we had the coup d'etat and, you know, the young boys, uh, long before they came in, uh, people like myself were becoming very disillusioned with what was happening in Sierra Leone because uh, I used to go at least twice a year on holiday, Easter and Christmas. And every time I went, it seemed things were getting worse. Um, you know, the uh, political class were very entrenched and very corrupt. I mean, like seriously corrupt. People now talk about uh, corruption, and uh, I smile sometimes when I hear <laughs> some of the tales of corruption because, uh, honestly, I can remember um, the then uh, Justice Minister and Attorney General um, saying to me that uh, a case had gone through the courts and had landed on his desk. And uh, uh, what had happened was we were actually having tea and a cake that my mother had baked, and he was saying how wonderful this cake was. <laughs> And uh, he said that a case had landed on his desk and uh, it had involved some people who were in a huge land dispute. And they'd given him some diamonds to actually settle the case in their favor. And he said one of the diamonds alone was the size of a chicken egg. And uh, he was quite open about it and saying that, you know, this is how things operate. And at the time I was working for the BBC and I remember telling him that... uh, you shouldn't be saying this sort of thing uh, to a journalist. <laughs> but he didn't care. Honestly, he did not care. Um, he was completely reckless about it. <laughs> uh, because they were so, they were so convinced of their... Yeah, exactly. So God, the guy just laughed. He just laughed, you know? <laughs> And so, you know, that was kind of, it sort of encapsulated the sort of going back home experience for me because every time I went, those were the sorts of things I saw and I heard. Um, I also uh, fell out with one particular person because um, on my um, trip there in 1990, um, I found out that he was a pedophile and I'd been staying at his house and uh, basically... He told me that, you know, because of his political connections, nothing would happen. And he and I never spoke again. Um, I hope he's dead. We moved out of his house that day. He is. He's dead now. Um, <laughs> yeah. But he, he was quite blatant. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think one of the things that, it, you know, I was born in the 80s, um, 1984, so we are the millennials. Mm. And, um, yeah. and and this is exactly why we, our generation, always has such how we have such a disconnect to the kind of Sierra Leone that mm-hmm. you remember from your own childhood, right? Because when people talk about Sierra Leone, yeah, you just be like, yeah. 
popular for our entire lifetime. If you were, if you're a millennial, meaning you're you're turning forty this year, meaning you were born, it's basically everybody nineteen eighty one, right? If you were born in nineteen eighty one to like um, the and uh, like early nineties, you're considered a millennial. And so the thing is, it's like, if we don't have a point of reference of when corruption wasn't normal and it wasn't the culture, um, we don't have a point of Mm. reference in our lives of like anything other than what you just described, where people do shameless, heinous things and they're not afraid or ashamed to speak of it in public. So like our value, what's, what has been normalized as, you know, cultural values of salon for we now, which you talk to, yes, somebody, when a big man, where they pull people, people, they all man know, nobody know they talk nothing. People who we know are corrupt and all of these things and nobody's, because now that's what we grew up with. Now that's, no, now that's what we grew up with. We don't know a different kind of Sierra Mm -hmm. Leone. Um, so you go back to Sierra Leone and you're just like, wait, first of all, this place is just getting worse. Um, and so what does that do to your career? Like your career, your life, your life path, um, the decisions that you make. Mm-hmm. How does Sierra Leone's um, deterioration um, impact or change the kind of decisions that you made with regards to your own life? Because I remember in our last conversation, you talked about how all of you who left at a certain point, it was your dream to return home. Like nobody wanted to, nobody when they left to go to school in the UK thought, oh, me, where I go, so we say I go land book. I know I ever go salon. That it, there was always this idea that you would yeah, come back. Yeah, we didn't think you know, we were how, coming. Yeah, so how then does that kind of descent into decay, <laughs> um, in, but, how did that impact your, your life? It was um, a strange one. And you know what? It's something that plenty of we know, we're not going to talk about this. Um, because we parents then, when they go study, either UK or America or some sign of Europe, they can always talk say when they go back. So we will not go back. We always feel kind of like, as if we, we disappoint the parents then. We disappoint ourselves. Because really, we always plan say, you know, one day, one day we will go back. Uh, you know, because you know, think about it. We parents there, they were very uh, idealistic. <laughs> they will say they go study, then come back and put all their talents to building their country. You know, that was what it was all about. Uh, whilst for our generation, um, the thing was so dysfunctional. You know, when you go, when somebody tell you about something bad, you complain and say, "What are the system?" You know, as if that was like uh, you had to accept that that's how things were. And we didn't want to accept that because, you know, uh, we knew that it could have been better. It could have been so much better. And so the dream of that kind of immediate post-independent Sierra Leone was, was dead. It was in tatters. And uh, one day I sat down, and I'm not being melodramatic. <laughs> I, I, I cried, actually. It was so upsetting. And actually it was that night when the guy told me about the um, – the diamonds thing. Um, I was not long married, and uh, my, my then wife, Zainab, and I sat in the room, and she said she'd never seen me so depressed. Um, and I said to her, I said, you know, what that guy has just told me about the system, he's the attorney general, he's the minister of justice, and he's bragging to me that people come and regularly bribe him, and he's not even, didn't even care that he was saying it to me. Um, 
it, it literally uh, brought me to tears because I was planning already uh, that, you know, one day I would go back. And I thought I can't come back and, and exist in this system. Where, as you say, um, people who were influential got away almost with murder, not quite, but pretty close to it. Uh, they did things and there was no comeback and nobody held them to account. You know, uh, it was depressing. It was highly depressing. The talk not on it, but make we take small music break with the musical sounds of Sierra Leone. Lady Felicia with Sweet Salon. Felicia Grand Touré, a.k.a. Lady Felicia, has been making music for 17 years. And now, make we go back to Make Sierra Leone Famous. So you returned to the UK um, with plans then to not return to Sierra Leone? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think um, that was when I kind of made up my mind that I would not um, come back other than the fact that I had lots of family that I would visit uh, regularly. Um, but I, I no longer started considering it as somewhere where, which it was kind of strange because in the UK, amongst the Sierra Leone um, community, they saw me as a kind of 
Mr. Sierra Leone. <laughs> you know, I would organize things on Independence Day. I would organize uh, conferences at places like Chatham House, where we would, you know, discuss things that were relevant to the development of the country. And all of a sudden, to close friends and relatives, I was saying to them, look, I don't think, in spite of what you might think, uh, I, I don't think I can go and live there. Uh, I don't, I'd end up killing somebody after a week, <laughs> just out of frustration and anger. But, you know, the, the weird thing was, when I was at the BBC, um, in spite of what I felt about Sierra Leone, I was actually having a fight with my BBC colleagues, many of them who worked in the, um, even in the Africa section were white. And uh, unfortunately, um, the BBC then, and probably still now, they're probably fighting it, but they had a, a, a culture of um, a lot of what they showed about Africa was the negatives. And so for the British uh, public, that ended up being their perception of what Africa was about. And I didn't want to um, buy into that or, or be a part of that. And so I would regularly have fights and arguments about wanting to tell a different story, albeit, you know, in spite of how I felt <laughs> about it, because I knew there was another side. Sure. <laughs> it was so It was weird. Yeah, that is yeah, such a real, it's a real <laughs> problem, right? Because on the one hand, and, and I think a lot of Africans yeah. struggle with this, because on the one hand, you mm. know that, yes, things are bad, right? You know that things are bad, yeah. Yeah. right? But on the yeah, other quite, hand, quite. you know that also, yes, things are bad in many, many ways on so many levels. And yes, I, I'm, I'm even like right now, I don't even want to go to that place. But at the same <laughs> yeah, time, yeah. there's this realization that if that is the only narrative we tell, then you dehumanize uh -huh. Right, like when you only tell right. any, then we become caricatures, and we're no longer human because we know that yeah. even in the middle of a civil war, civil strife, in the worst kind of place, yeah. there's still love, there's still joy, there's still um, compassion, there's still beauty, there's still all of these things that you can find in. Yeah, right. that, that make us all human, right? So I think that's always the challenge. On the one hand, you're like. Yeah, you know, like when you're in, it's like almost like this Creole team, but how you know, only we angry, we think you say, you know, for angry, you don't see close now, though. This, I forgot there is a <laughs> If he yams white, if he yams white, cover If he yams white, cover Like not wanting to air, no. air your dirty. Okay, not washing your dirty. Yes, yes, like for in, say. In public, that's right. In our yeah. mind, if like yeah. we to if I tell other salon person, say, well, salon cover yeah. up, salon. Um, but you know, only the international. So we, you're like, so we have to, we have to talk the talk like I did. But they one and they will not tell them. <laughs> and that, and it, exactly that. That was exactly it. It's like you know, amongst ourselves, we could talk really, really, uh, kind of explicitly about how bad things were. But we didn't want the world to know that because we knew that already the world was quite content with just painting the negative anyway. Uh, and so people would say to me, well, you know, if if it's so bad. Why do you keep going there on holiday? And I said, well, you know, my childhood memories are there. <laughs> my relatives are there. You know, uh, these are like close aunties and uncles, the people who every time my parents were gallivanting all over the world were the ones who looked after us and effectively brought us up. Um, and so, you know, I always felt very close to them. Um, but, yeah. Um, 
This is Vicky Remote from the Make Sierra Leone Famous podcast. I just wanted to say we really, really appreciate all your comments, all your feedbacks, the emails, the DMs, every other way that you get back in touch with us. If you really love this show and you want us to keep making content to Make Sierra Leone Famous, don't forget to leave us a review. Thank you. And now, make we go back to Make Sierra Leone Famous. Sorry, now I was just going to ask about, okay, now you're just this idea of, you know, being Mr. Sierra Leone, Mr. Organized Conference, Mr. Community, like being a community builder, community uh, builder, about being a community builder while you're in the diaspora during a time when home may no longer be the home you remember or the home you want to return to how do you how did you continue to build community like what are the things you did because i feel like right now even within the current climate that there are probably even more Sierra Leoneans in the diaspora today than there ever was before. Um, And a lot of people feel feeling that they cannot go home, um, but they still want to kind of continue to engage in the community and also just get to a place where that engagement can, can also reach back to Sierra Leone and make a positive impact. And that's, kind of what I know of you. So I just want to understand how did you go about continuing, even though your heart was broken <laughs> and you were depressed about sure, home, sure. <laughs> how did you continue to kind of yeah. um, find community, build it? What kind of activities did you do and what made it possible? How do you lobby your your country, your home country? For some people, maybe they were born there, but some people may be naturalized. How did you work with the resources that were available there to continue to build community for Sierra Leone. Yeah. I mean, funny enough, it was easy in a way because, um, as you know, um, every school in Sierra Leone has an alumni association, um, somewhere in the world. Every village has a, a village, uh, descendants association somewhere. And so I, would uh, link up with those. And so when it was, you know, anniversaries like the founding of Freetown or Independence Day or something, we would organize events. Um, Luckily, we always seem to have um, interesting high commissioners who would um, uh, invite us or allow us to use the high commission as a venue (laughs) for these events. Uh, And of course, it saved them having to plan it themselves. (laughs) Uh, but there was one particularly bizarre incident, which was when the Johnny Paul Goroma coup happened. That was, and I was working at the ninety yeah ninety seven May twenty fifth of May ninety seven, and I was at the BBC at the time, and I had gone um, to the High Commission with the world's press and all the West African High Commissioners who had gone there to support the Sierra Leone High Commission. And uh, I walked in, you know, with my pen, paper, and my recorder. And the high commissioner who was there uh, refused to speak at all. And he called me out. He was my father's friend. And he said, Adi, can you come and address the media? And so I ended up giving... Wait, 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 wait. It was lucky in a sense because I was working... Wait, (laughs) 
<laughs> the High Commissioner yeah. of Sierra Leone to the United Kingdom when yes. the coup yes. happened, because there were people there, yes. he decided he was not going to speak. He was no longer going to speak on behalf of the country of Sierra Leone. That you, who is not in government, <laughs> who hey, got a yeah, by you, Mr. Sierra Leone, and so like, please go and talk to these people. Like you know. <laughs> so God. Uh, to God. And you know, the funny thing was the reason he did it was because if they feel safe, the coup d'etat succeed, then go keep her on as high commissioner. So you know, you want to talk anything bad against the Johnny Paul there. Seriously, yeah. So I ended up, you can, it's on record. Um, I ended up hosting the press conference, taking all the questions. It was embarrassing because the Ghana High Commissioner was there, the Nigerian High Commissioner was there to lend their support. They spoke, and yet the Sierra Leone High Commissioner, whose High Commission premises, premises this thing was taking place, <laughs> did not speak. I can't understand that. So, God. Shame, shameless. <laughs> so, the Ghanaian <laughs> and the Nigerian High Commissioners went spoke at yeah. our event, at our embassy, to talk to the in, world. In solidarity, about yes. The yes. that had happened in Sierra Leone. But the Sierra Leone High Commissioner, is he dead, by the way? Yeah. Uh, he is also, yes. Um, but I can name him if anybody wants okay. to know. Well, no, well, <laughs> this is history, right? I do think it's important to name people. It's history, people- it's history. So it is history. It's a fact, right? So it's not about yes. like not all. It's the truth. Like oh, the yeah, fact is fact. the fact. And you know, because not doing work, you're not doing work. So my thing is like the oh, yeah. lack of of patriotism, right? It's like how how yeah. how it's not even like it's an absence. Patriotism, patriotism did not exist in this <laughs> man at all. For less until like that yeah. you did than a young individual survivor. Like, you know, let me play my cards right so that like by not speaking, by not doing my job, yeah. because I wanna make sure that, you know, I'm I can keep my job. Like seriously. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and and the press the, the British press who were there, they were completely perplexed because, you know, the Nigerians came out and said, we utterly condemn this coup d'etat. The Ghanaians came out and said, we utterly condemn this coup d'etat. And I can tell you, the High Commissioner, he didn't even so much as welcome them to the High Commission. He said not a word. He was completely mute. He's like, nobody uh, looking for you. I mean, I asked today. Now, where they hear me, boys? In fact, I'm not there. I'm not there. Wow. Absent without leave. Yeah. I mean, it was bizarre. Uh, So it's like a one hour um, press conference. And, uh, you know, I updated people based on what I knew, took questions based on what I knew. And, and, you know, ended up thanking everybody for coming. It was totally, totally weird. Um, Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, but, you know, what the thing also did for me was that uh, when people were coming over um, to London, uh, particularly to London from Sierra Leone because of the turmoil in Sierra Leone, um, I became aware of the fact that a lot of them, in terms of schooling, they were miles behind uh, British children of the same age. And so I started hosting free lessons in my house. 
um, for children. I would even feed them at no at my own expense. Um, and I can tell you this: uh, six years ago, when I was in London, one of those um, young children uh, ran up to me in Brixton Market and hugged me and said, "She's now a doctor." <laughs> and uh, I couldn't believe it. Uh, and she she was thanking me, you know, for the lessons, uh, and that honestly made my day. Uh, just to see that she'd, you know, sort of grown to those uh, such a stature, and and there were many that sort of passed through my door. So and through that, you know, I was able to keep in touch with the country, you know, through their parents and through them. Actually, just I've always wanted to kind of be this historian who records people's experiences. So I would ask them about, you know, what they remember about growing up in Sierra Leone, and always try to tell them not to forget because a lot of them. Uh, once they'd gotten to England, they sort of started pretending they were British, <laughs> and because of their bad experiences, they wanted nothing to do with Sierra Leone. Yeah. There was a time when um, yeah, so yeah. I was actually I was in Sierra Leone on May twenty seventh, nineteen ninety seven. I had just moved back less than a year mm-hmm. before Ethiopia because. I was really homesick there, and my mom was just like, fine, go Nasalo, go back to your country, go back to your country. And she had sent me home, and I, I had enrolled in school, and I was having the time of my life. And um, then the coup happened, and it wasn't until recently that I realized that I had actually blocked out that it, like, I don't remember in trying to, I think, as a 12-year-old child, trying to cope with um, a lot of the things that I saw, my brain has come like erased so much of that particular year um, in Sierra Leone because that's what you need. That's that's what human beings do, right? And for many years, I was always. Um, I wasn't empathetic to people's trauma, and I didn't realize how. Being traumatized as a child, yes, that one of the coping mechanisms is you want to leave all of it behind, right? So there is a generation of Sierra Leoneans who are millennials who left during the war and completely said, like, blocked out Sierra Leone completely and assimilated really, really well um, as a, as a coping mechanism, but on the outside, when you look at them and like the accent affectations, the, you know, really trying to, (laughs) like in the UK or the U S you think that they just are not proud. Um, and that's all you see, but you never think about, no, these people are responding to trauma and, um, they're trying to disassociate from those memories. Like I had brothers who, and they probably wouldn't say that it's the, it's the um, it made it was the war that did it to them. But I have brothers who, um, yeah, for many years when we were in the U.S., they did not want to speak Creole. They did not want to identify as Sierra Leoneans. They did not want to identify as anything but African Americans. And I never yeah. thought that maybe part of that is just like trying to mentally cope with you know, coming from a destroyed place and having seen so much destruction, you're like, yeah, me this thing. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's bad. I mean, there was a bizarre there was a bizarre case of this with my own one of my own cousins, a first cousin. Uh she'll probably watch this and she won't thank me for this, but uh she'd gone around telling people that she was born in Ireland 
And then, of all things, she was dating a Nigerian guy, and they were planning to get married, and they came to visit. And so, of course, I started speaking Creole to her, and she called me into the kitchen and said, oh, you know, we don't talk Creole. I don't tell this guy, say, I don't, I don't say we talk Creole. I know they understand that. I said, like, what, you were born in Sierra Leone? What are you talking about? And, and of course, I refused to, um, I mean, a Nigerian of all people. I mean, if you were sort of trying to impress somebody from Russia, I could understand. But a Nigerian who could probably understand Creole anyway, and for you to tell him that you don't understand or speak the language when you were born in Sierra Leone, you grew up there and didn't leave the country till you were like 25. <laughs> uh, I just thought it was a joke. And of course, I, I didn't, I refused to play the game. You know? <laughs> 25? Yeah. I mean, yeah, seriously. Yeah. She tried it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's not so, but that was the kind of thing that people did. Like they because you know, everything that people heard about Sierra Leone um in the press was uh was bad. And I remember I became some sort of in a weird way a kind of go to guy whenever the Times or Daily Mail had a story about Sierra Leone, someone would say to them, Oh, call this Addy, Darami guy, I'm sure he can tell you. And most of what I told them was the fact that, you know, I was in constant telephone contact with my uh, family members in Sierra Leone. And this was, of course, long before mobile phones. Uh, and But they, they kept me updated. Um, so even when the Daily Mail ran a story that lots of Sierra Leone young men were coming to London claiming there was a war in Sierra Leone, I had to get in touch with them and tell them they're not claiming there is one, you know, by then, you know, the... the, the kind of bush war by the RAF had started, you know. Um, I mean, and, but they were kind of oblivious to it. What always gets me is that in the in the reporting, of, and I think that's why we don't like it when they tell, quote, unquote, the truth of the negative side is because in the reporting, it's never nuanced, right? They never provide the context, like how they got here. It's just like, oh, this is just what... And, and so, because they, they want to do like a African news, speed, the speed version. <laughs> they don't want yeah. to give that analysis of like how the systems broke down, how they were complicit in its own breaking down. They're not going to do that, so they just want to fast forward. Exactly. So, yeah. One of the things I did in the sort of you talk about a resource um, in in London, particularly, uh, there are a lot of people from um, refugee countries, uh, communities, you know, from, from Africa, from all sorts of things, from Somalia, from Sierra Leone, uh, you name it. Um, and so they would have uh, International Refugee Week, and so a lot of the schools will would commemorate that week. And so what I ended up doing was I, I built up a sort of a, uh, a resource where I would go and give talks in these schools um, about what these countries were like uh, beyond um, the, um, the kind of shorthand narrative, oh, these people are savages. And I would always start it by saying that if you live in England and you watch TV at all, it is an impossibility for you to go more than seven or ten days without seeing a film that is set in either the first, second world war or some war. They're obsessed with it. Of course. Um, and so I would start by saying, if it was a school of you know Sierra Leone children or children from Somalia, I would say to them that just imagine this: for the last hundred and twenty years, there's probably not been a single year 
where Britain has not been involved in a war somewhere in the world. It's impossible. It's like now you could talk about Afghanistan or Yemen or wherever, where somewhere where they have an interest or, 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 or a presence. Uh, and so, you know, when they tell you that you're warlike or you're savage and so on, you can always throw that statistic at them and you can list them going back from the Crimea War, you know, through to, you know, First World War, Second World War, wars of independence against the Indians and so on. All of those, the Mau Mau in Kenya, uh, where the British suppressed them and killed them and put them in concentration camps. So I'd always give them that uh, to say, look, you're not savages. <laughs> Don't let anybody tell you that you are. And then I would sort of tell them about things like the arts, the culture, uh, the architecture of, of that country and say these are things that define you, not just the fact that you're a refugee. And so uh, I, I did that every year for several years during International Refugee Week. Um, and, you know, of course, Sierra Leone was uh, one of the ones that I, I wanted to use to tell that story because otherwise people just get the kind of shorthand version of Africa. Um, and, and I didn't want that to be the place. I, mean, I struck lucky when in my career, because when I was working at the BBC, I, I had two jobs. I also worked at the cabinet office. And I joined the cabinet office a, a month after Tony Blair became prime minister. So, so, and of course, he was very much uh, somebody who was supportive of Sierra Leone. So, um, no, yeah. I think one of the great things that has to happen um, in the for yeah. Africans in general, for Sierra Leoneans in general, is like what you were doing going to these um, centers and these schools to talk about. What you were doing was kind of like destroying the myth of British exceptionalism, yeah. right? Because yeah, white, people, totally, totally. white people and, um, you know, oftentimes, a lot of times, believe in their exceptionalism. It is, you know, yes. Amer there's American exceptionalism where you think that, like, oh, we're just great at everything. And, you know, they whitewash their own history and their own stories and their own narratives yeah. for themselves. And they're always the good guys, right? They're always on yeah. the side of... And I think in when we're talking about um, independence and Sierra Leonean independence, a key part of that is that as individuals and as a country, you first have to destroy the notion, ideas, or any preconceived mm -hmm. about um, the exceptionalism of the British Empire, about of the UK, of British people in general. You have to just take that and you put it down the toilet. <laughs> And start the conversation from a place where you acknowledge that, you know, we are, first of all, equals. That's the one thing. And there's nothing that the powers that be, the neocolonial powers, the Tony Blair's of this world, do or there's no way or reason. They don't engage with us because they like us and they want to help us develop. It is There's no such thing. That concept does not exist. <laughs> Every time you see people like that in your area, it is because they have vested interests. And those vested interests are oftentimes to preserve certain powers and um, certain powers over us. So um, I just wanted to say that because this is about Independence Week and Sierra Leone at 60, that we have to keep having the conversation, not just about, that, that's not just about celebrating independence, but also about um, 
being anti-neocolonial so that those people who come on the promises of helping us develop with their development agenda don't um, take us back without us being aware that really these are neocolonial forces trying to still have control over us, um, whether it's the control of our resources or influence um, the political um, dynamics in our country. Neocolonial, modern day elements and forces that. And, and rejecting them. Yeah. Yes, that pretend to be aligned with us for our own good, but in actuality yeah. are there because they have vested interests. In light of the fact that this is um, this is the independence edition of our show, and you being a you were a British civil servant um, for yeah, so many yeah. years. Now that years, you're retired, yeah. please tell us how these people work. Tell, explain to us how they enter us and tell us they are helping us when really they are just there to continue their agenda. You know, you know it's um, the next story I'm about to tell you is 100% true. <laughs> uh, and I think you know Sule Darami, right? I just spoke to him before this call. Like, we just spoke yes, just now. Okay. Because Nami, Nami, right. Nami, um, he's like my godfather. You know, saying I fall in a fear, he said, me, they woke me, my man, I fall in a fear. Like, my, he just uh-huh. moved his book. He actually called to say he of just course. went to my house to drop us, drop off his new book. All, all protocols. All protocols. All protocols. <laughs> I, I, I saw the book online. Well, you can ask him about what I'm about to tell you next. Uh, I was at the cabinet office and uh, uh, Tijan Kaba had been overthrown by Johnny Paul and uh, the British establishment, the way it works was that uh, as a deposed um, prime minister, he couldn't be received uh, officially. But Tony Blair was a supporter of Tijan Kaba. And so on a particular day, Sule called me. In fact, coincidentally, he was previously high commissioner here in the Gambia. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you probably know, yeah. Yes, yes, uh, yes, he called me. Yeah, exactly, yeah. He called me and said Tijan Kaba was in London uh, and he was aware of the protocols regarding the fact that he was deposed and that he couldn't be uh, invited. Uh, was there a way that he could be invited to number 10? And believe it or not, uh, the last phone call I had had before the one from Sule was with the diary secretary at number 10, fixing an appointment for Tony Blair. And so I said, look, I said, all I have to do is press redial and uh, I can speak to them and see what they can do. And so, you know, uh, he said, yeah, please do. So I've called them straight away and they invited Tijan Kaba uh, because Tony Blair had like a 15 minute slot on the coming Tuesday. Uh, and Tijan Kaba went, he posed for some pictures, which he always used right to the end of his days. Uh, But the weird thing was, there was a reception for him uh, organized by 10 Downing Street, uh, at which Tony Blair was going to be there and so on. And so lots of um, old uh, British civil servants who'd worked in Sierra Leone up to the 1950s, in fact, up to independence, were there. And these were people who, in Sierra Leone, People held them in very high regard. Uh, but what was odd about it was uh, they were all bragging about how, uh, because of their white skin, when they were in Sierra Leone, uh, they would walk out of the country with pockets stuffed with diamonds. <laughs> and nobody, because they were white, nobody would dare stop them. And they thought it was funny, actually. 
they didn't know I was Sierra Leone and they just knew that I worked at the cabinet office. And so they were telling these jokes. And when it got too much for me in the end, I had to say to them, look, as a Sierra Leonean, I don't find this funny at all. Uh, because, you know, nowadays, yeah, um, I said, you know, nowadays we talk about corrupt leaders and corrupt uh, people in, in authority. And you're now bragging. What they said was that what they used to do was that uh, they would give the, um, if they weren't traveling, they would quite happily give the diamonds to their wives. And as one of them said, to laughter, he said nobody would stop a white woman and ask to search her bag when she was leaving the country. Uh, they thought it was hilarious. And, of course, these men all grew wealthy on that. Uh, and so, you know, these were people who ostensibly uh, still had this really good reputation about, you know, being you know, good civil servants, they were this, they were that. Uh, but, you know, they were corrupt, actually. <laughs> and so I, I told them. Uh, Isn't so it that when part of colonial um, narrative is that either the things they did were for our own good because we're somehow subhuman and can't do those things ourselves, or that we don't really know how to, the things we have, we don't know how to use them, or we don't value them, so they'll take we don't them. don't value them. And, and, yeah, that was the thing. What are these natives going to do with these diamonds? They don't know about diamonds. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just take the diamonds. These people, they don't need these things. Why are we like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, well, you know, that kind of thinking. Uh, some, some, a few months ago, about six months ago, I circulated some uh, British newspapers. Um, uh, from the 1890s uh, after they had uh, destroyed Benin and, and taken all the treasures. And when they exhibited them in London at places like the, you know, 10 or 20,000 artifacts were taken and, and then put on display. There were so many they had to use about 20 different places uh, to display the Benin bronzes. And it's interesting reading the British newspapers uh, almost all of them said that these could not have been carved by West Africans. <laughs> uh, they started inventing stuff, saying uh, they must have been trading with Egyptians. <laughs> and, 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 you know, uh, look at the pyramids. Uh, this is almost as, as good. It's, it, the quality is of a similar standard. And so these are, must have been the people that they were dealing with. And so, yes, there was that sense that, you know, these people don't appreciate what they have. They don't value what they have. Yeah, the one thing I've, even just, you know, when I moved back to Sierra Leone in 1997, uh, I mean, no, sorry, 2007, this was still the time when there was still the UN mission was still there. They did not pull out yet. And there are lots of expatriates in the development conflict um, world. And it was just like, just the way people would even engage with you as a Sierra Leonean. Um, I mean, I remember being asked all the time as somebody who had left the diaspora to return home, like white people who had left the UK to mm. come to Sierra Leone to do work would interrogate me on what, what was I doing in Sierra Leone? Like, it's bizarre. You talk to them, they're like, oh, so why, why, why did you come back to Sierra Leone? And yeah, it's like, yeah. first of all, I'm shocked and gobsmacked that you, I owe you an explanation about what I'm doing yeah. in my own country. I'm not asking 
continue what you're doing here, but you have the audacity <laughs> to ask me why I am in my own country. And so, yeah, I mean, long, thankfully for me, um, I got to Sierra Leone, I had done enough post-colonial African history, colonial literature, mm-hmm. Anglophone and Francophone. So I entered there prepared. I had already read Confessions of an Equal Man. I entered that room fully equipped. <laughs> I entered everywhere to deal with any kind of nonsense. And, but I know there are still many Sierra Leoneans, especially in government, who the minute a white person, the minute they anybody a white person any organization or any institution, they look at them like they're here to save us because they think that every time they engage with us, they've bought into the narrative that they're here to help And so they always engage with yeah, that yeah. And that's why a lot of the policies and a lot of the things you see us taking on sometimes aren't necessarily, like, people will be celebrated for doing things internationally, but locally, locals don't appreciate those things because they don't want those things, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, hey, we don't know who that is, we don't care what this Sierra Leone Famous. The podcast is mixed and mastered by producer Frank Vin Bob McEwen with support from the creative and talented team over at VRNC Marketing Company in Freetown. And now, make we go back to Make Sierra Leone Famous. This, um, this role because they think that every white person who comes is a person who can bring money and bring wealth. And like, so you like, this white man will go tell the other white man there, say, I'm good. Then go come put me there. So like, we just have this idea in our mind. And it's really, really problematic because what I see happen is a lot of times then they wouldn't give the same level of access and engagement Mm -hmm. to a Sierra Leonean person, whether they're in the diaspora, where, but then a foreigner comes in. And the thing that gets me about the way they, um, you know, Butsue Omojuba to foreigners and, you know, is is that the, the the foreigners who do come to Sierra Leone, the expats, the development experts, et cetera, et cetera, they are never the best in their field. We don't actually, I always tell people, I'm like, listen, no country, no day in this world, except for us, right? Except for us. There's no country in the world where they will leave their best to go to a developing country. No. Nobody allows the best in their country to leave. We do. But the people who are, you know, the people who fund us, they're not letting their best scientists come to us. They're not letting their best business people come to us. They're not letting their best civil, like nobody who is excellent top of their game. They're not allowing them to come to you, which is why when I saw, you know, like example, let's use Tony Blair's office, for example, because, you know, I love him so much. When I saw that Tony Blair had an office in Sierra Leone, and for 10 years it was within the office of the president, and it was staffed by, you know, lots of, like, white people, right, expatriates, 
I'm like, and you would engage with them. These were people who were recently graduated from college, then just don't do tutsi, waiting and call. And then in cancel on, they cancel on an office of the president, and say that they give advice on how for you spreadsheets and Excel and this, this, this. And I'm like, wow, that he got a level. This is not our level. So these are the things, right? I know. I, I, I know. Are they the things I have seen and witnessed? But you can still see it today. When you just go alone tomorrow, you go see all the way governments they make make mere mere this this this, and then somebody and from an African you know. country would come, like an African business person who can actually invest in the economy. Salon are the only country where Dangote go for go start factory. Yeah, and say Dangote commodity. <laughs> <laughs> And then take Tony Blair and go make a paramount uh, chief. I'm like, this country. Paramount chief. Me one day, nobody don't make me paramount chief. You know, you, they go, they go, give, they go give with man order of the hotel. Then go give, make yeah, paramount chief. So. You go there now, so you yeah. don't go back there for your country. Yeah. Now you name them, they're not yeah. Sabi pronounced properly. Then go there. <laughs> I digress. I digress. Every time I talk to you, it's like talking to like an old friend. So of course we go on. But I guess since it's Sierra Leone at 60, I guess the only next thing for me to ask you is where do you, are you optimistic about what's to come? And what are the things that make you optimistic? Um, And then what are those things you feel like? Um, until we address these issues, we're probably going to be stagnant. One thing a friend said to me recently, which I really, really um, related to, is just that a lot of us think that you cannot stay underdeveloped forever. Like some people have this idea that like one day, one day it will be. And he was just like, no, as a continent, actually, we could forever be broken and destroyed, right? Like, if you don't fix it, it's not going to get better. It's not so, going to fix itself. Yeah. At all, at all. It could just stay day. Like, you can really coast. Um, yeah. As we sell Mark, I don't know if it's a celebration, but as we mark 60th, 60th Independence Anniversary for Sierra Leone, um, and mm-hmm. we're looking for, I guess, the next 10 years until the next, the 70th, whatever, the future, um, yeah. Are you optimistic for what where we're headed? And what are the things that, um, I hope you're optimistic. <laughs> Actually, you're not allowed to be optimistic. So if you're not optimistic, please be optimistic right now. Think about it. I know you're optimistic. If I can change my question. Optimism. What are the things um, that you see here that makes you feel like, you know, I spent my entire life dedicated to building community for Sierra Leone and um, working for Sierra Leone and building UK Sierra Leone relations. Um, but here are the things that I'm seeing right now that make me hopeful for, um, you know, Sierra Leone in the next 10 years. Yeah, I mean, to me, um, there are lots of little things. And one of the things I was saying to a friend just the other day is that unless somebody brings all these little things together to tell people about what they are, uh, then we're not aware um, you know, um, there's this friend of mine who's a, she's a writer, she's a blogger, she just had this book published. Um, <laughs> and Sir Lindons are busy embracing this. Uh, I say, my God, you know, <laughs> you might know who I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, uh, but no, in all seriousness, uh, we felt a buzz when we saw that and people started sharing uh, you know, details about it online and telling people, you know, if you have children, buy this book. It's 
a positive book and so on. And then you have things like Slack Fest, you know, Australian Arts and Culture Festival, which takes place in London annually. You and I are both been on. And what really uh, gave me a buzz about that is that not only were these young Australian and some of whom were Australians in quotes because they were actually born in the UK, but their parents were Australian and they were going back to Sierra Leone. Some of them who did not speak Creole were now learning Creole because they know that that's the lingua franca in Sierra Leone and they wanted to be able to fit in. And some of them are actually going back to go and try and live there and they're trying to start businesses. And when you look at the talents that are within uh, the group of those people who, for example, organized that, then there are positives. You look at Freetown itself, the mayor, Yvonne Akisoya, um, you know, uh, every time she gets an accolade or an award, uh, people embrace it and celebrate it. I even use it here in the Gambia to kind of shame them to say, you know, these are some of the things you should be doing here, seriously. Um, you know, so, but the thing is, because of all these things are not, there's, there's not a kind of umbrella where all of these things are celebrated and people are not aware of it. And so I was saying to the people uh, who do Slackfest, I said, that should be part of your job. I can help in whatever way I can. I can help with both the historical and, and you know, in, in the present. It's not like I'm sort of kind of, you know, gathering dust somewhere. Um, I, I always have an interest about things that are happening uh, that are good and positive uh, because I think those are the things that inspire people to actually say, yes, we can achieve. There's a lot that you and I know, if you allowed it, the kind of the depressing stuff, the, you'd end up being beaten down by it, uh, but uh, we can't allow. What we should do is not ignore it, but at the same time, when there's stuff to celebrate, uh, like your book, uh, like Slackfest, like uh, Yvonne getting uh, nominations, we should celebrate those things and we should let people know that, you know, Sierra Leone isn't just, you know, in here in the Gambia, uh, people have this notion that Sierra Leone was once this great country um, and a very good uh, education system. So uh, we should use the good things that are happening now to inspire those in the present and for the future. And so, you know, I keep saying to them, make a note of all the good things you hear and, 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 spread them, you know. Uh, as for the bad stuff, um, you almost don't need to bother about spreading them because there are so many people who are willing to spread that anyway. <laughs> so that's it's right. like that's your job right. is done if that's what you want to do. But right. the positivity, and there's so much of it, and it's so spread around the world that, uh, you know, share those and let people know. So that's really So I am optimistic, yes, yes. No, um, but I, like you said, it's not going to happen by itself. Uh, you no, know, uh, as my mother used to say, a cake doesn't bake itself. <laughs> Somebody has to put the ingredients together, do the whole thing. Uh, yeah. No, you're absolutely, yeah. absolutely right. Um, I have had to, for my own mental well-being and also for me to be able to continue to engage with home, I've had to be very intentional about amplifying positive, um, positive people who are doing positive things. I don't need. I to think. Um... Yeah, I don't need to know them. I don't need to like them. Even they just have to be doing mm -hmm. something that that sheds a positive mm -hmm. light on Sierra 
Cameroon or that impacts the community positively or that's creating something that makes people uh, think of Sierra Leone in a different way. Um, and that gives me, I'm just like, yeah, let's amplify this. And I, I also am optimistic optimistic about Sierra Leone's future and exactly for the same reasons that um, I feel like there is a resurgence among Sierra Leoneans, millennials like myself, who are leaning in for Sierra Leone and not necessarily looking for government jobs or government positions or Udami Papabi, but are just really engaging with Sierra Leonean culture um, and, and each other in a really dynamic way that I feel like if we keep pouring fuel on that and continue to if we keep pouring fuel on these uh, positive engagements these um, what all this activity that's happening and connecting the dots that people then start feeling positive at home because if you don't feel positive about mm -hmm. home um, you're not going to engage. If you don't hear stories about how Sierra Leoneans have gone home and started businesses and those businesses are successful, you're not going yeah. to want to start a business there. It doesn't matter what I keep telling people, it doesn't matter how many World Bank reports or IMF reports or this, then we say the growth rates go go so did this. It doesn't matter for Sierra Leoneans. <laughs> what matters uh -huh. for Sierra Leoneans are success stories of other Sierra Leoneans in Sierra Leone. And that's why I amplify yeah. that because I'm like, people in Ifono say yes, people in this salon, where they're not deep on politics, they're not deep on governments, they get business, then they get projects and get ideas where then not only then they make money, but then they positively impact the community. And there is a lot of that. I see it every single day. And it's what gives me, um, mm -hmm. I don't know, it brings me joy. And so I amplify it and I encourage everybody else to do the same and to lean in for positivity and to lean back uh, all the way back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The negativity, because the negativity, Boku. <laughs> so we have to be intentional about like leaning back from negativity as it relates to Sierra Leone and leaning in for um, the positive stuff. Because otherwise, we all go depressed. We not not go one for go day. We not go one for do nothing day. Just like yeah, left that country, they are not able. Um, so, yeah, no, I am, for the same reasons, very optimistic about Sierra Leone. Um, so happy 60th independence anniversary. Um, I, I don't know how you're going to spend it. Um, wait, are you going to go to Sierra Leone for the 60th day? Is, are you, you were planning on doing like a, I remember you had said you were planning on doing like a book, a Sierra Leone and 60 book like you did for Sierra Leone at 50. Is that still happening? Will people be able to get the book? What's going on with you for 60th? Yeah, I mean, the 60th, um, it's a shame because um, what I'll end up doing is that there, there won't be a book for the 60th, but there'll be a book, there, there won't be a book in time for the 60th. Uh, and it's a shame because, you know, Sierra Leone is the land of diamonds. And of course, 60th anniversary is the diamond and Jubilee. And so a lot of what myself and others wanted to do <laughs> about this book, about getting it out. You know, there's not going to be any kind of dancing in the streets kind of thing. So um, I think the next best thing is to put together something that will be um, available online. Uh, you know, uh, these days we're now used to kind of, uh, you know, dealing with people online. Uh, and so uh, there are lots of kind of linked um, things that I'm doing that are to do with online uh one of, in fact, the biggest project I'm working on is a kind of 
online um, African museum, uh, if, if I talk about it in shorthand. Uh, I first proposed it 11 years ago to the African Union uh, at a conference, but I found the papers just the other day <laughs> at a London conference. Uh, essentially, um, you know, it's, you, you click on it and uh, it, it takes you into each country and it takes you into sort of artifacts and treasures of that country. But coming up in, in March or April, there's a book on the architecture of sub-Saharan Africa. And there's a chapter uh, which involves, I think, 10 articles on Sierra Leone. And I, I've edited it. Uh, I've got architects to write the various ones. I've written one of the bits. Uh, so I've edited the Sierra Leone chapter. And it's a stunning book. Um, those of who are on Twitter or Facebook would have seen. I've been posting links to it. But it's coming out in April now, and it's seven volumes. Because I would love to, you know, we're here to collect for our children, you know, the artifacts, the books, the everything. We're not going to be, you know. Inside Salon, then they grow up. We are very hungry for anything that we can Yeah, to guide them. Yeah. Search a home. Thank you so much. Well, Naindon so for today on edition of Make Sierra Leone Famous with me, your host, Vicky Rameau. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Ta ta.